Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Back in 1970, in Sweden, an author activist named Sven Lindquist published a book called Dig Where You Stand. With the subtitle, How to Research a Job, the book was an intricately detailed step-by-step guide to the mechanics of researching histories of manufacturing. But it was also a manifesto a clarion call for a worker-centered, worker-generated history, for working people to take control of their own history-making, wresting research out of the hands of experts, or more accurately, redefining what counts as expertise to begin with. The book's call to dig where you stand, research your own immediate circumstances, had a pivotal impact across the globe on the burgeoning movement for community and workers' histories, including the History Workshop movement, of which this podcast is a kind of grandchild. Now, 45 years on from its original publication, Dig Where You Stand has, for the first time, been translated into English. In itself, that was a monumental project, but the book's significance made it worth the effort. As Katerina Torn from the University of Gothenburg puts it in her blurb on the back cover, do not mistake this for an ordinary handbook or a dated analysis of working class conditions. Lindquist's book shows with vivid clarity how capitalism permeates society, our homes, lungs, and children's future. And yet, at the end, There's not despair and hopelessness, but an empowering sense that things can and will be changed. To discuss the book and its continuing relevance, I sat down over Zoom with the two editors who spearheaded the project and brought this new translation to life. Astrid von Rosen, Professor of Art History and Visual Studies at the University of Gothenburg, and Andrew Flynn, Reader in Archival Studies and Oral History at University College London. I began by asking them a simple question. What is Dig Where You Stand? So, I mean, I think it is, um, I think it's fair to say that it's it's a number of, of, of things. It's not just one one thing. I think it's, it's important to uh, see it as... Uh, as a movement that it represented a, a movement called the dig movement so the dig where you stand comes very much out of out of that of that movement and that's something uh that uh, astrid is going to talk about much more on the, on the relationship between the dig movement and dig where you stand as a book but it's it's also a manual it's a manual that accompanied that movement, uh, laying out in detail how workers and communities could do that their research what was called barefoot research historical research into their own lives and environments and their working lives but more than a dry manual or a dry DIY sort of textbook about how to do different historical researches uh, and techniques it's also it's also a text and an assemblage which in its intention and in its rhetoric is propulsive it's urgent it's a political text which sort of transmits linguist sense of the importance and the power of doing this work so that it's not a it's not it's not in any way a suggestion of a kind of leisure activity this is the doing doing history from below doing one's own research into one's own community history into one's industrial situation is a is an urgent and important task which as some of the some of the commentators on who've provided us their thoughts on the book have, have emphasized the notion of of transformation that it's a linguist talks about industrial transformation and industrial democracy in the Swedish context and I might say some more about that later but it's also about a social transformation that that doing your own history understanding the past and its relevance to today is, is a step towards transformation and I think that's that's in essence is a kind of 
space in which dig where you stand sits as a as a movement a, a manual and a, a a guide to political transformation and and the role of history in in, in that now maybe i can um add a few things um as well as like summarize this in three words so it's a, it's a, a manual a motto and an ethos but I also think it's important, like today, coming from today's theoretical landscape, that you also ask, instead of what it is, you can ask what, what it does. What does it do? Because it has that prompt inequality, and we, we're going to uh, talk more about that. But one thing I would like to add now in the beginning is that it is also a critical heritage keyword, finally, now being uh, made accessible in English after many, many years and a lot of hard work. So what I think it does, it provides the sort of current sprawling critical heritage studies with a foundational text. That's what it does. A little bit like, you know, the writings of what Freud does for psychoanalysis, Lindquist does for, for, for the cross-disciplinary critical heritage studies. That's my firm conviction. And um, you can, I mean, you can see I'm smiling. Both Andrew and I are so pleased that after 10 years of dedicated work, that it's actually accessible now in English. So that's a great thing. And I also do think what the book does, it resonates in fantastic ways with more recent manifestos and manuals and, and uh, critical research. So I also do think, but that can obviously be debated, but I think Lindquist's excellent language and sort of it's very special and crisp clarity makes the book well worth reading I don't know Mary Beth you told me that you have been reading it so I'm not sure you agree but maybe you know you have a, a comment on that yeah no it absolutely it absolutely does I was really struck by how invitational the language is throughout that it's really um, I mean it's kind of without being heavy handed, it's opening this process up, you know, and at the time, I'm sure you'll get to this at the time, it wasn't about turning on your laptop and going down some rabbit hole. It was about actually, it, well, either starting in your own home or, 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 or going into local archives, but, but taking that process out of the realm of the expert and validating the expertise in everyone. And that's just very, very it's very moving, really, because it's stated so defiantly as, as an entitlement and a right of, of every citizen. It does. And also, we have a favourite quote, or I think it's Andrew's favourite quote, but I think we can, we can talk a little bit about that now. And it's about Lindley saying that history is too important to be left to the historians. I mean, that's a huge favourite, and it's sort of, captures what the book strives to do in, in, in like a few words. So here, Linklist is obviously a very, very, very skilled writer as well as researcher. I, I think that's a good pivot to actually talk about Linklist himself and who he was and how he came to write this. Yes. So I'll start. He's a person with, with quite an extensive legacy and a very interesting legacy. So in, in two short words, of course, he's a, he's a writer and he's also an activist. And I think in the English-speaking context, activist makes perhaps more sense than in the Swedish context. But uh, so leave it at that. So I'll just go through a few like uh, biographical details. So Sven Lindqvist was born in 1932 in Stockholm. And he uh, died in 2019. His parents were school teachers, so he had, one can say, he had a bourgeois upbringing. But what he told me, like the first time I met him and interviewed him, um, that he started writing because he um, he couldn't do social dancing. He would. Uh, he would freeze and he would feel like he could, he just couldn't do it. And then he took to writing in order to be able to date girls. And he was so successful. So he, he wrote letters to his, the woman who became his first wife, uh, Cecilia Lindquist. And I'm really happy to mention her 
because she is she's a very important person also in the Digway Standbook because she took the photographs. Those are very much part of that context, and that's also something I hope to come back to later. Um, and then after this, Lindquist, he did several things, but he worked as a journalist for major daily papers in Sweden. Um, already early on, he got very interested in writing in innovative, personal, activist ways, and he turned to political literature and was he was quite, he was doing something that nobody else did at the time. So I think that that can be described as a very brave thing. He he would also study language, so he spoke Chinese and he was cultural attaché in Beijing from 1961 to 1962. Um, in 1966, Lindqvist had his doctorate in comparative literature. So you can also see that he's clearly a skilled academic as well as a journalist. So, so this sort of builds up towards what we came later. And maybe, Andrew, I know you... you you often like to talk about the international context. Yes, uh, but perhaps before before I do that, I think it, it would be okay. worth you outlining the uh, the Swedish context of the dig movement because I think that's that's really important to understand where Linquist comes in into the Swedish context of this kind of existing movement, and then I'll I'll maybe talk about the international dimensions and influences on his work. Yeah, I can I can do that. What I usually do is like I try to summarize this in like two bigger factors being important as a foundational for the impact and success of the Dick Way You Stand publication in 1978. So if you see it from the like longer historical perspective, we can turn to the like late 19th century. So there was, in the Swedish context, a fertile ground for the dig movement, as well as for, for the actual publication. I'm not sure you know this, but Sweden has a, a quite a long tradition of independent workers' education, and that is uh, rooted in 19th century social movements concerned with temperance, labor rights, education, and religious belief. So it's this mixture that provides a ground for what in the early 20th century became like formalized workers' associations and independent working class education, which is like a very strong feature in the Swedish context, has been for over like more than 100 years even though it might not be as important today as it was, as, as it has been. So that's sort of one thing. And in, the, in addition, if we look at what happened, sort of shift between the 90th and 20th century, you would sort of in tandem with temperance and labor movements, etc., you would also have a very strong uh, historical movement, like organizations and processes for gathering and preserving what can be termed peasant culture. At least we translate it as peasant culture. And in addition, you would also see the growth of the homestead movement, which celebrated local place, culture and traditions. And I think what we can talk about here, or at least mention, is that there are obvious frictions between the very, very local and not so theoretical focus of the homestead movement and the international, political, critical force of the Digway Stand movement, the way Lindqvist phrases it. There are other Digway Stand ideas and movements that are, I think, closer to the homestead movement. So I think it's important to acknowledge these frictions. So that that's one thing that firms a very sort of solid foundation for for the dig movement and the book and then the second thing i would like to mention is that in the so now we, we sort of move on to the 1960s and there swedish industry and probably also a lot of of international industry at least in in the european context underwent a major structural upheaval with many smaller factories merging into larger conglomerates so you can see what what's happening here and of course it's it's for obvious reasons that lindqvist addresses cement factories in his book. So one result of this process was the urgent need to salvage local industrial cultural heritage at risk of disappearing. And that would include significant employers, such as the cement factories I already mentioned. Okay, So, and Lindquist, he was very involved in and aware of all these developments. What he did he would attend conferences on industrial archaeology, 
and he would engage in continuous dialogue with the international research community. That's a, a very important part also included in, in the actual Degoistan book. And in addition to this, uh, in this in Sweden, media, the 19, early 1970s media, they, they helped to popularize historical research. And they would also provide and distribute study materials for producing local history. So all this happened before the publication of Dick by Stand. So when it was actually published, everything was prepared for a accessible, easy to read manual to, to be used. And it was used by hundreds and hundreds of persons belonging to study groups. However, which is interesting, it, it can be debated how much of it was actually read because what happened in the study circles was that they would have a person leading the study circle, introducing the essential ideas of the Degoistant movement, and then people would keep, you know, working. They would start digging and providing whatever materials for something written, for something exhibited, or a theatrical play, or something else. So I think this, like, this is um, a way of framing that very vital context and the movement of course is not something that is only for a few people it's actually a profound societal feature engaging like the entire society agrees that okay we engage in this everybody wants to dig dig in the Swedish context that's what like media wrote about so it was like a massive engagement back then I think that provides really the essential kind of foundations for where where Linquist makes his his intervention in into this. And I think to see those two strands, both of the workers' education, a more political approach to looking at the history of working class organizations and of uh, working class communities, alongside perhaps the the less explicitly political dimensions of the of the kind of peasant studies or the the homestead movement, I think is that's those are good essential elements of the dig movement, and and Linquist, I think brings a particular perspective to this and a particular perspective that he outlines in in his work and his reflection on this work which is i think it would be wrong to describe describe him as as a as a marxist later when he received the the lenin award or the swedish lenin award he he found his speeches is, is available online and it's it's certainly worth reading he found it amusing in a sense to be being in receipt of the, of the lenin award because he'd often been a critic and been critiqued by the Swedish left for some of the the positions he'd, he'd taken, and he described himself of, as a as more of a, a, a feminist and a social democrat. But he's he's clearly on the left and is bringing a left perspective that is at least in part derived from his travels, his experiences in China, his experiences in Latin America, very much so towards the end of the 1960s, which he, he documented. He was there with the discovery of, uh, of Che's body in Bolivia. He was in China in 61, 62, and wrote very extensively about his Chinese, Chinese experience. And he later wrote that the, the some of the roots for his thinking about the importance of workers doing their own research was to be found in his experiences in Latin America and in China. He also talked about this, the sort of the metaphor of digging, going back to, to Nietzsche, but also finding inspiration in Marx and the Bolshevik revolution in the turn towards workers' in, in, inquiry. And I think there's all those dimensions mentions are, are are there. So whilst not strictly uh, a Marxist, he was influenced by the importance of, of workers' education and workers' uh, study, workers' inquiry in, in, in addressing how their current situation was implicated by, by the past. And I think that's 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 really, really crucial. Equally, he was also part of a and I'm very aware of a of a range of, of post, post late sixties, early seventies political and academic and artistic movements, particularly around uh, a kind of sort of more collaborative. Uh, 
approach to creative practice and knowledge production, more participatory approaches. And he's mm-hmm. specifically engages and mentions participatory turn in theatre and, and, and the arts uh, in, in Sweden and elsewhere as being an influence in thinking, you know, if we can be more participatory in, in arts practice and theatre practice, why, why can't we equally be just as equally engaged in participatory practice in history making and knowledge knowledge creation and he makes that that the specific connection and that brings into that 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 comment that we've we've already heard i think about the the history workshop axiom about history being too important to be left just to professional historians i mean the first uh, in the in the editorial of the first history workshop journal and the notion that's in the oral history journal article and in his preface to dig where you stand about being you know, workers being expert in their own in their own jobs in their own lives, and and this 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 notion of expertise being shared across many many backgrounds and, and uh, spaces, and not being confined to traditional academic environments or uh, or power elites. And I think that's a really central core to what linguist is both tapping into as a general expression of of, of attitudes, but also. It imbues the the whole ethos of, of the book. You find you find this all the way through, and I think just to sort of put a bit more context in this, in terms of just to think about the kind of sort of circles in which these ideas are flowing, and Linguist is very much very much a part of it, and this will sort of merge into a kind of discussion later of of the global influences of this. But it it's very important, I think, to know that that Linguist is, as um, Astrid said, you know, not having discussions around the, the international movements around international archaeology, but is also very engaged in in uh, the movements which include in, in the UK, the history workshop movement that includes uh, across Europe, the oral history mu- movement. So he's very, very on very good terms with Paul Thompson and Raf Samuel and Ken Walpole. He speaks at the History Workshop conference in, in 1979 and the in the first European International Oral History Conference uh, in, the, in the same year, which was held in Essex. And, you know, he's he's moving amongst all those those people and, and involved in those debates that, that were very current, particularly at the 79 History Workshop conference, where the debates about popular history and people's history, theory and practice were very much embedded. And he was right at the centre of those. So I think it's really important to see that Big Way Stand is, is very Swedish and has a really and linguist has a very Swedish context, but he's very much the internationalist. He's very he's he's mm-hmm. he writes internationally, he travels internationally, he's influenced by international <laughs> movements, but he's also engaged in in very specifically those history making and history thinking movements that are that are very across Europe and uh, and and wide across the globe in that in that late seventies, early eighties period. What I've been very interested in is how it's structured and what it does, because arguably the book is not only about how to research cement factories and your job in there. It can also be described as uh, a manual providing models for how to conduct from below or or do the digging anywhere in any context and I think it does it really well so we can, maybe we can talk a little bit more about the actual structure so the book consists of 30 chapters uh, and they have very clear headings such as the library the archive and so forth they are straightforward and they describe how to conduct research, for example, in the archive. And even though we live in, in digital, so-called digital times, a lot of, of work is definitely still extremely material, embodied, and it crafts traces that are certainly not only digital. So to me, the book is just as useful as it was in 1978. But of course, like it, it's it's very similar to, to what historians of psychoanalysis has to do with Freud. You have to read it in a creative way. You have to understand the context where it was constructed and you have to think about what does it do today. And uh, so these 30 chapters, they provide... Uh, materials and methods 
and uh, it's not only for academic scholars, it's for anyone who wants to do this. You can step in, you can be there. Lindvist says you are there, you can do it. And I also do think that has a very strong prompting quality. quality. Don't wait, just go in, do something, do your bit, which I do think still matters a lot. So, so my way of theorizing this, um, and I think more people should also step in and, and try to theorize the structure of the book. I think it crafts an intriguing montage of text and image that all the time will juxtapose, for example, the owners of factories and the workers' lives. That's a very simple juxtaposition, but it's extremely productive. And the book does it throughout. So one also has to take the visual materials into account here as factors uh, with of agency. So that's a way of trying to handle what the book does. Also in terms of methodology, uh, it's not like one method. So it, it offers oral history, visual analysis, archival research, memory work, spatial explorations and critical reflections. And what it does, which I like so much, is that it doesn't go with a sort of mainstream or traditional understanding of the archives. It does what recent global critical archival theory does. It talks about memory, it talks about bodies, it talks about place, and it does it throughout. You can just remember, if you've read it, you can remember how Lindqvist describes the lungs of the workers, the way that dust will destroy their bodies. And that's brilliant. And that's totally updated in, in my sort of way of, of reading and working with this. So I think the embodied dimension is a very, very important component of this book. I think there were a couple of things that I'd say about the, the structure and the purpose of, of the book, which I would add to that. I think it's um, one of the important points to to make about the intervention that Linquist is making is is a very I think conventional point now that we would we would accept, but important and important to to accept is that one of the points that he makes about and, and this is particularly true when he's talking about uh, in the industrial archaeology and around the the chapter around museums and corporate histories that 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 all these these histories and these presentations of uh, of industry and work at the time and this is still the case i mean if you go to an industrial museum you often find the industry being portrayed and described and displayed without the workers involved mm. um the workers are kind of somehow absent from 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 these spaces in, in lots of way and and Linquist's book is is very very clearly addressing that addressing the the issue of 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 putting the worker or the the class or the community back into 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 these histories into these spaces and advocating for museums that 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 in, include this and and for histories that in, include this so i think that's a really key point and thinking about that kind of the point that Astrid just made about the embodiment of this of the kind of physical mm -hmm. dimensions of uh, of of capital and of of the impacts of of capital and labor and how that impacts the body across generations and this is his point about history being dangerous and history being with us all, all the time so I think that's a you know, a context for the book, and the book, in a way, is a step-by-step -step guide to how to how to rectify it. And, and it takes the cement industry. I think Astrid's absolutely right. It takes the in, in, cement industry really as a as a model for how to how to do do this research. So, return to its you know how what it's like to read it now but it you know even then i think it was it was it was very specific to industry but as a worked through example something that was personal to linquist through his family connections to that industry but also an industry that was in decline but had long-term implications for those who, who'd worked in it but the the real point is is this is a work through example in it of every every aspect of how to do how to do this research and i don't think there's necessarily an expectation on linguist's part that everybody should do every aspect there but this lays out all the different tools that are there for what what is sometimes called barefoot researchers or the or, or, or the worker researcher the the activist researcher in this context and so that the choices are all there they're they're laid out and what what I really find important, or one of the things I find important to motivating is this, is the way that he goes, again, in quite a modern contemporary way, he goes beyond the 
the official sources. So he goes beyond the corporate archive, he goes beyond the state archive, he goes beyond the library and the statistics. He tells us all about those things, but he also goes beyond that and he goes into the into into memory, into oral history, into personal records, into into other sources of, of material for for telling those histories in in important and different ways. And of course, he's very much as I suggested before, very much part of his times there with with the oral history and uh, history workshop movement. Um, the only other point that I'd, I'd make really strongly about the book and, and its perspective is its vision. And I, I find this really strongly. So sometimes dig where you stand movements in their practice are critiqued and sometimes you know, maybe they are in, in, in the way they do things are seen as being kind of very focused on the local and and not, not having a broader understanding. I think linguists work and what he's encouraging people to do couldn't be farther from the truth of of that is the chapter one and i always kind of really kind of sort of focus on this you know the, the initial chapter is the world he before anything else he he is urging people to 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 raise their their eyes to the horizon to understand their place in this industry in this history not just in the local context, as important as that is, the understanding of the of the lived realities, but to understand it within the global global way that industry and capital um, is is organised. And in in that first chapter, you know, he, they go beyond that. They don't just look but to the horizons. They go and visit cement industries and activists in, in in the UK and that global part is is there right from the start and I think it's really it's really crucial to what Linquist is, is trying to suggest is this this connection between the local and the lived experience but to see that lived experience in a broader uh, context in which capital and, and labour are, are operating. I also think in addition we we must talk about the last chapter entitled The Barefoot Researchers, because that chapter takes the ideas from the book into the future, which is quite fascinating. It's, it might be thought of as some, some kind of utopianism, but I also, when, when rereading it, I started thinking about what perhaps in particular, like queer and trans, etc., communities do today. They turn to languaging. They use language to write up alternative futures. So I think Lindquist does that uh, in a very interesting way, where he also talks explicitly about the the difficulties when some people are turned amateur researchers and some others are academic researchers, and that friction is still around, even though the notion of the amateur has been re-theorized in a very interesting way. So it's it's no longer a way of saying, oh, it's only about you love what you do and that's it. So it has to do with, with all the knowledge that comes with profound engagement in something. Um, so I think it's it's like almost before it's time in the way you know it's it's written and how creative it is. It's also interesting because actually I had forgotten that. Chapter one, where he goes, they go to the UK and they go in search of this c- cement factory, isn't it? That has been, as it turns out, shut down. And they they encounter a, somebody who used to, just by chance, picks them up and drives them out there. And it turns into this very moving kind of elegy uh, with, with a journey into this man's memory rather than into the into the factory. And and in, in a way, what happens in the rest of the book is different from that because it goes from that personal experience and encounter to a manual which is astonishingly detailed in terms of the different places that you're encouraged to go and look and dig and reimagine. I mean one of the things that really struck me in in those later chapters is the focus on in to use a phrase from another context following the money you know, seeing where money in families goes and and when the families emigrate from Sweden, which many of them did, and how these, you know, it is like what we're now seeing in the in the legacies of British slavery project or other projects that, to trace the, the, the imprint of a dangerous past in the present and how yeah. that has created and enriched and enhanced the power in the power structures around us. 
And and all that was was really stunning. And because that, that made such an impact on me, I'd forgotten that that bit at the beginning is so powerful. It's so mm. powerful in terms of it shows you what the book could have been if he had wanted simply to write a kind of experiential, reflective treatise on memory. He completely had that in him. But it mixes those two. It goes from that to saying, okay, I've done this. Now you can do this. And here are all the ways in which you can approach this task. I agree, absolutely. And I think it's it's that's why I think it's such an important start to the start to the book. I think without without that 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 chapter and that perspective, the book would would lose lose something. It wouldn't lose its its detail and its possibility. And as you say, sort of tracing, tra- following the money, for, following capital mm-hmm. in its in its things. But having that that first chapter, which talks about the world and and memory in such a such a very evocative uh, sense, it it really provides a, a different and strong introduction to to the to the text, mm-hmm. and the, the rest of the text follows follows that. But it is it is different and contextualized by that mm. yeah I do I do agree and I also think that the book is a great dialogic partner and when you read it you really feel that Linkist is like talking to you and delivering ideas methods that you, like inspires you at least I feel always very inspired when I read it and I've also like used it for a lot of my own research so but I think um, the dialogic quality is a, is a very interesting dimension of it i wonder if if we could even though we've you've you've touched on this already but the the impact well its impact at the time of publication in sweden and 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 globally Mm. yeah 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 we we have mentioned it but i can just like very clearly state that when the book was published in 1978 nobody expected it to sell really well but it sold out in, in in a very short period of time, and they immediately had to to uh, print a second edition. So, as I mentioned before, it was like the the key manual for the study circles. It had a huge impact, huge. It was all over 1978 and the years, you know, the following years. But then it declined. So from Nine mid nineteen eighties, uh, people lost interest in it, and also that there were in in the Swedish society major like political changes. You can see like the shift o- over to a more sort of neoliberal uh, way of understanding and and sort of the world and and the political climate definitely changed. I think it's probably worth noting that. When Astrid talks about the, the sort of decline in 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 the nineteen eighties, that that's also accompanied with the decline of the, of the of the dig movement and the study circles in 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 that same period. So that 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 ten year movement sort of ebbs away from from the mid nineteen eighties onwards. But the the book has a really interesting and substantial international influence. The dig movement extends beyond Sweden and in Nordic countries. Norway and Denmark have translations published fairly sw- fairly swiftly of of dig where you stand. There's another translation in Ger- into German in the 1980s, and then in, into French uh, and and Quebec and French sometime in the I think it's in the 90s that the first uh, first French version is, is published. And the, the versions are somewhat different. I think the Danish and the Norwegian versions are, are pretty faithful translations. The German, again, is, is is quite a faithful translation, but it has uh, chapters at either end, beginning and end, that sort of contextualise it in a German context. Mm-hmm. And it's intimately connected with the, the German history workshop movement there. The French version is really inspired rather than being a translation. It's, it's, it's really a kind of sort of rewritten, but drawing strongly on on the on the original the interesting difference is to look at the, its impact within the english-speaking world because in the english-speaking world the book was never published until now so the text the full text was not was not really really available in the um, anglophone world um, but that didn't mean that there wasn't there wasn't a strong influence because I, as i've already mentioned Lindquist was very engaged in that sort of 79, 80, 81 period within, uh, particularly within the UK, but also uh, we're sort of exploring the possibilities in, in the United States for, for groups taking up the dig where you stand approach. So he spoke particularly 
uh, at the Oral History Conference in 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 1979 that, that happened in Essex, um, and that was published in the Oral History Journal uh, of the same year, and in an edited volume that Paul Thompson put together from that conference called Our Common Home, which came out I think a year later or so, and that. That chapter or article, which is, is effectively a verbatim account of his speech that he gave at that conference, is how most people in the English-speaking world who hadn't seen him speak engage with, with the ideas. And in, in, in essence, the, the article is a sort of distillation of the, mm. of the book, but it's very focused on the ideas that underpin it. So it's very focused on these ideas of, 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 of history being dangerous, of history being important, of, of workers, of doing these to, in, to engage in social transformation and industrial transformation. It's, it's not really about the mechanics. There isn't time to do the mechanics. And in fact, he, he says in, in this talk, my, my wish to do this here it speak to you before is that you go away and you write your own dig where you stand for your for your for your own countries in your own situations um but we didn't we we never really moved beyond that in, in the english speaking world about getting the, the 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 full version but it was influential so people like ken walpole talked uh, has talked you know on several occasions in different places of of dig where you stand being the ethos and the rallying kind of the history workshop movement we know that the, this manuscript that, that we, we've now used and actually worked so hard on did exist and it existed. It was created in about 1980 and 81. And I, I was reading today in just looking at uh, some copies of the History Workshop from uh, 1980-81. There's a note saying, if anybody is interested in taking this manuscript and getting it published into English, please contact Raf Samuel and he'll, 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 he'll contact you. So... The manuscript is there, but when we when we talked to, to Sven, when we interviewed him, and I asked him, or we asked him, you know, why it hadn't been published, he said it was it was considered too Marxist or not too or not Marxist enough. And I think in that he was he was related to the controversies of, of that of that time about about theory and you know, doing this this kind of work and in you know in a sense a book about history and as a as a motivator for political change but also one that was kind of encouraging workers to do their own history was right at the center of those those debates in in, in lots of ways so yeah I, we couldn't understand it but it kind of left it uh, in the status of this of this kind of sort of almost i think some of the some of the the people we've asked to comment comment on the book talking about being a mythical book in the in the English in the English language but the article was 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 there and it was very powerful and I think it influenced people over and over again and so you can see groups that that have embraced the dig where you stand idea over the years but without having reference to the English collection and you can certainly see that in the UK you can see it in uh, United States there's references within Radical History Review to to degree you stand and its influence. Um, and, and interestingly, I, I was speaking to people involved in the history workshop at uh, University of Witzerand in Johannesburg over the last year, and their long history of engaging in that this kind of work um, and their interest in this kind of work. And they said that there is a play produced in I think the 1980s called Dig Where You Stand, which makes no reference to Linguist, but Clearly, is, is digging from the is from the same territory, and they're and they're and they're trying to look into the the lineages of that piece of work and see whether that you know that is as it must be directly influenced by Linkwood's work. So, in English speaking world, there is definitely a really strong and powerful influence, but it's 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 different, and it's uh, it's a bit it's a bit more in the, the the area of a kind of a metaphor, a motto that comes out of this powerful, powerful article that's you know, sort of five or six pages in, in Oral History Journal. And that's that's really it. We'll include a, a link to that if we can in the in oh. the notes so people can find it. But I, I did want to jump from there to, to now since you've laid the groundwork for it with why then, you know, since it's done, you know, you could argue it did the work it needed to do in English without ever having an English translation in full. So why a translation now sort of coming on not quite, but nearly 50 years on, 90, uh, 45 years on. So 
2013, I was recruited to something called Centre for Critical Heritage Studies at University of Gothenburg, and we were supposed to collaborate with University College London, in short, UCL. We were asked to link up with scholars there in some sort of academic speed dating. Um, so I selected Andrew Flynn because his interest in archives. I was also deeply engaged in history from below and archival work and wanted to explore the legacy of completely excluded independent dance workers. So came there to UCL and, and that was kind of shocking and a bit difficult. Um, and I had like two minutes to speak to Andrew and I just felt, okay, um, I'll, I'll tell him what I'm interested in. So I did. And then he said, oh, but that's very interesting. And immediately mentioned Sven Lindqvist to my shock because <laughs> I I was not engaged in and had not thought about Sven Lindqvist at all, even though uh, Dick Stan was, was sort of around when I was a child. It wasn't like something I would read or, or engage in. But then Andrew talked about it. And then I said, but, but you don't speak Swedish. You, you can't read. You haven't read it. No, he said, I haven't read it. So then <laughs> came. So, so sort of immediately we felt that, okay, the book has to be translated. And back then, I think we we had some vague idea of, of a manu, manuscript existing. But eventually it was like, okay, it's in Amsterdam. So with the help of, of colleagues and friends, uh, we got the manuscript and then started that massive work. And it took on a new turn in 2016 when I contacted the original uh, translator, Anne Henning Jocelyn, and she could update the manuscripts, but it was massive work. I, I mean, it was such a mess on that document that it took several years and then started the sort of next phase involving the difficulties of, of and we were shocked that uh, we couldn't find a UK publisher who would take on Dick stand. They felt it was like dated and didn't resonate with the digital world. And and uh, so it took a very long time. So that's that's why, you know, it's, it's, it first came out after 10 years, <laughs> 10 years of work. But we are extremely grateful to uh, Repeater Books and the people there because they immediately understood uh, the importance of the book. Uh, so it's been a wonderful journey. As soon as they joined, um, things became possible, including the reworking of, of the cover to update it, not only featuring a, a male cement worker, but a more ambiguous yet, you know, sort of signaling uh, a person hard at work. I think it's worth adding to that a few things from, from my perspective. I'd been aware of the article. I worked at what was then the National Museum of Labour History uh, in Manchester in the 1990s. Um, and I'd been engaged with oral history, doing my own PhD studies at the, at, at the same time. And at some time during the late 80s or the early early 90s, I'd, I'd been introduced to, to the article and it kind of sort of stuck with me as being really significant in terms of the kind of history from below that I was interested in and the, muse the museum represented to, to some extent. These sort of connections between the Labour History Museum and the Museum of Workers in, in Sweden and its connection to the Dig Where You Stand movement is, is also all, all embedded in, in that. Um, and I've been involved in in work with and and research and community-based research which we kind of used the principles of dig where you stand in in, in around the 2000 2008 9 10 that that kind of time and we'd use dig where you stand as much as but i'd never really i hadn't really like thought much beyond the article to i'd I, you know i'd looked into the the dig movement but not into the i knew there was a just a swedish text but there was there was nothing that was that went beyond that in in, in english that i could find really but lots of if you looked even at even sort of 10 15 years ago if you looked online there were lots of groups that were using the imagery using the the name to describe their their work in a whole range of different areas so you know from folklore to community history to uh, song and poetry you know there were kind of sort of numerous dig where you stand references all over the place the actual existence of the manuscript was was really interesting. How it suddenly it suddenly came it came to us from from two places. One of which was through a colleague of of Astrid's at Gothenburg who knew Sven and um, had said, "Oh, there is definitely an English manuscript." But at the same time, and, and this would I think is interesting and worth 
worth referencing, an activist, activist historian from an international group called the History From Below Network had picked up on the fact that I was really interested in in Dig Where You Stand and said, I know that there's a manuscript and the manuscript is in the Institute of International Social History Archive um, in in Amsterdam. And that, I think, is an important part of the tale because it it shows that the kind of activist interest in that and that they were inspired and were writing about, but again, hadn't seen the book. I think once we got the manuscript and we were put into contact with Sven Lindquist and he was really enthusiastic about trying to get it published in, in English, that was a real motivation for, for us to to try to get publishers interested, as Astrid has described. That was difficult, and I understand in many ways why it was difficult. It, it, it wasn't an obvious way that you was going to find an audience. And um, so, uh, so publishers often looked at it and thought, well, you know, is it going to have to be modernised, completely rewritten to bring it up to date with a, you know, a digital and a, a different milieu, perhaps, or can we can we publish it as it as it was? And I I think it's worth worth mentioning the intervention here of Gareth Evans from from Whitechapel, who independently from us was interested in working in in publishing more of Sven's work and in publishing in English, in particular, Dig Where You Stand, and got in touch with with us heard that we were already doing that but it it was his connections particularly with repeater books that got us into contact with them and and they they looked at the manuscript and they understood it so i think gareth's vision and understanding of this was was really important as well in finding that connection to to a publisher who understood what they were what they were doing and how they could publish it i wondered as a kind of bringing things full circle it's come up now several times, the question of, of the book's continued relevance. And I'm thinking especially in the, the idea of the citizen researcher, which, you know, in this era of disinformation and do your research, that, that phrase can carry all kinds of connotations and, and have some troubling consequences that we've all been living with. But this book is clearly written in a progressive spirit and with this very principled stance of inclusivity that makes a real case for the radical impetus behind barefoot research. And I wondered if you wanted to say something about the book's, either its legacy or its its ongoing importance, in, a, in even in circumstances when for most people, for many people, the conditions of doing research are, are different than they would have been 50 years ago. I think you can always benefit from reflecting upon uh, and starting with situatedness, where you are and why things are the way they are, and do that in a sort of of a critically engaged way and not only accepting whatever fake news or, or strange things or things simply being bureaucratic and forced upon you. We have that as well. Lindquist taps into all these areas. So to do the job and take responsibility and figure out things for yourself, I think still is, is hugely relevant in, in um in our global, like very, very precarious context, the way jobs are constructed today. Um, so, of course, I mean, people will have to update the ways they do it, but perhaps not as much as we think, because you, you know, it's still valid to take where you stand and don't go too far. Start with, with the people close to you at home, he says. Start at home, which I do think is, is, is so relevant um so i i i i feel very inspired by by um the way he says that uh, you are there you can do it and then he also says something that's that's i think is even more valid today because we live in this sort of really massive visually sort of constructed world upon world upon world and he says that to to um to conquer history and have influence, you also have to conquer the image, which is scary, but it does have a point. <laughs> so um, I think it's like before his time in many things he writes and that uh, it's well worth reading. I think the appeal is is very much in 
that realization or that restatement of, of that the, the idea of the past being important to understand the present and change the future and that's so significant in terms of all sorts of different things and I think you're absolutely you know we can talk about the the darkness that that is over over the world at the moment and, and understanding that within historical contexts you mentioned the legacies of British slave ownership and, and that that important project and, and and that's one area that Linquist doesn't spend much time on but but explicitly mentions the importance of of understanding the legacies of colonialism and slavery for understanding contemporary world. And I think, you know, his focus here is on, you know, on capital and the kind of economic and social uh, relations that that capital and and labour struggles produce. But it, it is very much about influence the past. And we've had some interesting discussions with people who are in, involved in in, in in more contemporary workers' inquiry work, which is often focused very much on the present and on present wage relations and industrial relations. Can we bring the past back into that kind of sort of contemporary sociology? Can history and sociology in a kind of workers' context, can they fit? And I think there is a really important role there and a really important discussion, I think, to have. And it ties in very much with a very influential work on my own work. And my own work's focused a lot on uh, on community-based history and independent uh, historical research within struggle and identity struggle context. But a work of a now sadly past academic and activist called Aziz Chow, who who wrote very extensively on something that he t- he termed learning activism and that the you know not seeing this some, sometimes a binary between activism and learning uh, activism and research and actually that in order for activism to be effective there needs to be learning and education that's built in learning from the past learning from experience and I think this work fits really clearly into that. But I think you are really right to suggest that there are dangers here. I think we, we've heard a lot over the last few years about people who've, who've done their research and they've, they don't believe in all sorts of things. They don't believe in vaccination or COVID or whatever, and they've, they've done, done their research. I think what the difference here, and yes, the difference is framed within a progressive context, but also what Linguist is, is proposing and, and is outlining in this work and outlines in that, that final chapter on the barefoot researcher, which partly embraces the idea of collaboration between, mm. between independent researchers, barefoot researchers and, and academic researchers, but being led by, by, the, by the barefoot researchers, which again, I think references back those kinds of collaborations which were attempted in the 1970s. But more than that, what the book, demonstrates it's the importance of rigorous research that is research that is is that is embedded in an, in an approach and a an approach to research that is empirical that is looking looking for evidence it's looking for evidence in in a wide range of places but it's research that it, it, and it's history writing that is based on research and research techniques that are often you know you know it's considered to be all oh, those are the those are the domain of the academic researcher or the professional researcher but actually they're available to to everybody and they can be done by everybody but here they are here are the, here are the tools and i think that that rigorous research this isn't a you know a, a, a sort of say you can just go and do go and do some you know some shoddy superficial research the whole book is about doing it in a really kind of detailed and fundamentally sound fashion i think but also what it does so well is that it negotiates or renegotiates the idea of who is the expert. I think that's a foundational point made by Lindqvist because an academic who has not worked as a dancer or cement worker or other type of worker doesn't have access to the how it's physically felt, how it structures the body or even destroys the body and what language is actually used the terminology so, so the idea of collaborating across borders and and also acknowledging other expertise than traditional academic expertise is is crucial i think in the book and and uh, of course that makes the research even more rigorous so it's it's not about like anything goes it it has nothing to do with with like relativism in that way 
but it open it certainly opens up for other ways of researching work and and the legacy of workers, all sorts of workers in very important ways. And I think it's a lot of of work today centering around that. For example, uh, and Andrew mentioned the the participatory approaches, for example, and those are not easy. And the negotiations concerning empathy and and uh, how to work across borders those are very difficult. I think Olympus uh, provides useful model in there. Also for, for like different stakeholders, who can do what and how can we collaborate? Many thanks to Astrid von Rosen and Andrew Flynn for taking part in this conversation. You can read more about them and about Dig Where You Stand on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk, You can find us on Twitter or X at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.